Hello and welcome to From No to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Iggy Perillo, the founder of WSL Leadership. One of the foundational subfields of philosophy that we talk about on the show frequently is ethics, which concerns itself with morality and principles. Today we'll explore a topic in a similar vein, which is virtue. Specifically, how we should teach virtue. Don't remember taking that class in school? Don't worry, you're not the only one. So, um, yeah, that was, that was a little bit of a, a tongue-in-cheek comment there, because I, I was homeschooled for a couple of years, and I did take a class in virtue, along with a class in logic and a few other sort of obscure things. But um, I don't think that most listeners have, have a, a very good background in virtue. So, No, uh, no one does. Yeah, <laughs> no so, one does. Iggy, thanks for being on the show. Um, do you want to tell the listeners a little about yourself and what you do? Absolutely. My name is Iggy Perillo. I founded WSL Leadership, and my goal is to help leaders and teams thrive by using their emotional intelligence. So that looks like one-on-one coaching, that looks like team development work, that looks like a lot of things. And the goal of having leaders and teams thrive is to really do a better, do better and help people do better at doing better for their people and do good by their people. And that trickles into this idea of what virtue is, I think, in some ways, and also like there's an idea of good or a greater good that I'm pursuing through my work that if we are good leaders and good teammates, we will thrive together and the world will be a better place versus not so great leaders and kind of terrible teammates where, where our lives are full of dread and terribleness. So try to avoid the terrible, skew people toward positive emotional intelligence work and thriving. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important work because I, I'm sure everybody has had good jobs and bad jobs. And I think that oh, what yeah. determines a good job or a bad job really comes down to the very things that you're talking about. Um, so one thing that stuck out to me was um, when we think about virtue, uh, a lot of people, it seems like an old fashioned word, right? We don't hear it used very much in a modern context. Um, but some of those other terms that you used, uh, like emotional intelligence and that sort of thing, those are those are more modern, you know. Um, so do you think there's sort of some sort of correlation between the two concepts or are they completely different? Or I think emotional intelligence is more of a set of skills and ideas and practices. And virtue, and I agree, it's a very archaic term, which is a little bit why I love it, because we don't use it that often or think about it that often. So it's a little jarring to be like, oh, are we virtuous right now? Like, how does, <laughs> what, what even does that mean? It could be intimidating. It seems weird or it seems very, I don't know externalized to ourselves. But I think I like the idea of virtue. When I talk about virtue, I think about the Mino, the Socratic dialogue, where he's really talking with the person about, well, what is virtue? Can we teach it? Is it a thing? Is it a concrete set of knowledge? Is it not? And I don't think virtue is actually a concrete set of knowledge that we can teach in the same way. My background is in experiential education. And so I'm more aligned with the idea of Socrates having a dialogue is education versus the outcome of that dialogue, that the process, the experience that you create through people is a way to move toward or shape behavior or do all these different things, but also a way to engage with virtue in a way that's super personal. And the only way I think to do it versus, I mean, we could read about it. We've obviously read dialogues. We've talked about it. You've taken classes on it, which is beautiful and amazing. But what it, what it really means, I think, is a little more personal versus emotional intelligence. Are we talking about transformational leadership? Are we talking about, you know, sort of these different ideas around what leadership means and how it works. Those are all great. And I, but I think they, they hint at virtue without really diving in very, very intentionally, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sort of torn on, on what you're saying because um, on the one hand, like I'm, I'm a real introvert. So I, I like doing my online classes and I like just kind of tackling stuff on my own. But then when I think about it, 
um, the resident expert on the show here, Norm Gayford, um, he was a college professor of mine. And that's part of the, you know, part of the reason that this show, well, the main reason this show exists, right, is because he was a, a professor of mine. And that's sort of what he facilitated in his class, right? We didn't just read over text or cover what, you know, what we did in the book. It was always, well, what do you think about this? Where does this go? And what is this? And, you know, having those those conversations that actually lead yeah. lead to things. So I, The engagement, I, like human engagement is... Yeah. I think how we learn things like the experiential part of the education really matters for these terms that are not discrete knowledge. And there's plenty of topics and areas where discrete knowledge is super important. And obviously you need to know numbers, facts, dates, you know, like any of these sort of discrete concrete sort of pieces, but the whole other half of our lives, two thirds, I don't even know. It's not a half and half. The only other part of our lives to make us complete people is subjective, intersubjective. It is, you know, human and not quantifiable in those same kind of ways. Yeah. 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 Excellent. So, do you want to give a brief overview of what what virtue is? Some listeners might not Ugh. have an idea. You know, <laughs> they might think, okay, well, you've, I've heard you talk about ethics before. How does virtue, um, you know, how is it different from ethics? Uh, who even knows, to be honest? But we will take a stab at it. Maybe we'll figure it out during this conversation. And I mean, Socrates put some good effort in a couple of thousand years ago. Didn't really solve anything. Basically, at the end of that conversation, the the fellow he was talking to, Mino, was like, I'm out. <laughs> like, I'm done. <laughs> like, didn't even, was like, okay, like you spun me around in circles. I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. See ya. Uh, and I feel like I'm still in that mindset <laughs> at the end of discussions of virtue. But I think we like to think of virtue as a set of rules or parameters or guidance for how to live the good life or how to do things right. And that is awesome in an ideal sense, but totally impractical in a practical sense. Like there are, there is not a set of rules, concepts, step-by-step process to live, live the good life and be, do well, you know, be good to people around you because there's a lot of that is cultural dependent, even just hearing you talk about being an introvert. And so to support you as an introvert, am I going to put you on a stage in a stadium of a hundred thousand people? Like maybe not, that might be not how your introvert like self feels really expressed well, but a one-on-one podcast, great. We're going to thrive in this space. And so to say really good ideas need to be blasted out to the people on a, in a stadium public person, you know, style, like maybe like that's cool. But in reality, that doesn't, it's not treating you well. And it's not serving you as a person necessarily, even though the medium of using social media, it's going to get your ideas out there also. So I think there's not necessarily a right way to do things. I don't know. What do you think virtue is? Yeah. I'm curious for your thoughts. Um, Cause I, I think the ethics is like um, the rules, like the overarching guidelines and stuff. And then I think virtue is actually like, um, like a subset of, of topics within that's like actionable. Uh, like you act on your ethics and that, that's, that's kind of virtue sort of. So, so it's almost action based kind of, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic cause I'm um, currently taking some, some doctoral level, uh, developmental psychology classes. And, and one thing that they're talking about with the way theory is developed and stuff is that, uh, you know, up until very recently, the, um, the sort of uh, main way that developmental psychology was looked at was in like a Cartesian split. So you had, oh, well, it's either nature or it's nurture or, you know, it's stability or it's this or that or the other thing. What they're finding is, oh, no, that's not really, you know, that that's beneficial if you're trying to reduce things to a uh, the bare minimum where you can understand them. But the fact is, that's really just not the way people work. Like, you know, people, it all depends on your place in history, your place in time, your your current circumstance. Because like I said, I'm an introvert, right? And that might be true for a majority circumstances. But then there's other circumstances where 
I'm very extroverted, right? So people are very complicated and, you know, how they express themselves will vary across situations and across time. And I think that's important, you know, especially in the business world, right? Like for the work that you do, um, you know, I'm, I'm the production manager for a plant. So um, I spend a lot of my day talking to people, you know, the majority of my day talking to people. Um, and, you know, how I go about it might be different from somebody who um, is an extrovert, but at the same time, um, is the end result much different? Well, we'd probably both end up doing the same amount of talking just because that's the way that the, the job is laid out. But, um, so Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think I think virtue might be, um, I think it's an action, right? When you think about, well, what are virtues, right? It's uh, what, like being courageous or being um, mm-hmm. honest or being mm-hmm. something that you have to do, I think. Whereas right. I think, yeah. To think about there's two parts come to mind when you said that. I was thinking about the sort of classically ancient Greek idea of vertu, right? Which is that your ancestors are going to honor you, that you act now so that your ancestors honor you or your future ancestors, right? So your ancestors in the past honor you and that you're like, as you, once you're dead and gone, the, the people around now, you know, whatever, that you're honored by your ancestors, which is cool, sort of, and yet we know many people from history who are like super cool at the time, and now we're like, no, that was not cool, you know. Like they're just things change, or how we evolve to look at things, or how we just grow as a culture, as a world, and as humans. We're like, yeah, back in the day, this was amazing, and now we're like, oh, that that's uncool, but you know, here we are. Yeah, yeah. I think you, Kelly Chase and go ahead. I um, talked about that a couple weeks ago um, when we were on her podcast talking about women in history. Um, and that was something that she mentioned too. Um, First Nations people in Australia, um, that's the way that they, they sort of conceive of time is, is three generations down the road, right? And that's sort of alien to, um, at least like a modern Western way of thinking, right? Like it's, it's all about us now. Like nobody's thinking, right. about, oh, for, for my great grandchildren, um, what do I want them to think of me and, and what I did? And I don't think a lot of people think in that way. Otherwise, the world might be a very different place than it is. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's classically the, the one of the law of the Iroquois was like that you're acting for the next seven generations, right? So that like that you're just this longer view of time is very different. But then so how do I act in the moment? I, I agree with you, too, that virtue is how we act and how we are what how we are doing the things. It's a little bit around the how and maybe not always necessarily the you know, some of that bleeds into the what and the why a little bit, but how we are acting now and how that impacts the world around us. And you mentioned things like honesty and courage and stuff like that. And I think there's this other weird subtopic about values and people, like I do a lot of work around people identifying and solidifying their personal values. Hmm. And so then when they act in alignment with their values, they're acting virtuously, but we might have different personal values. Like you might value honesty and I might say, cool, well, how many white lies did you just tell when someone asked you if they liked it, that, if you liked their sweater and you were like, yes, I mean, no, I mean, wait, yeah. Like, you know, how many times do we do act in ways not in alignment with our virtues or not in alignment with our values? Then are we not being virtuous? I think there's like a piece of alignment there. And like being courageous is important to some people or honoring their culture is important to people or connecting, supporting their family, you know, are different types of values. Integrity is another popular one in the business world. Mm-hmm cool. Are you going to be integritous all the time or just some of the time? Yeah. Are you being virtuous by acting in that alignment? Yeah. Yeah. And that comes back to kind of what I was saying about what I'm studying there. Um, you know, we have this, just this idea that, okay, well you have this concept and then that's, that's the thing that you should be adhering to or striving to adhere to all the time. Um, 
Oh yeah, honesty is a great one, right? Because it's like, there are some times where it's very, very important to be honest, but then there's other times where you go, is it actually harmful to be dishonest in this situation? Or am I actually going to do more harm by being honest and not really accomplish anything other than hurting somebody's feelings or something like that? Right, right. Well, I think there's this other beautiful line where uh, honesty doesn't need to be brutal. Like you can be honest and diplomatic for sure. And there are people that are much better at that than others. And that's this beautiful skill set. And that's actually, I would say, an emotionally intelligent skill set to be honest, but not brutal. It's be, you know, to really convey information and to be clear and clear about things that might disappoint people or might, you know, make them unhappy down the road, or you suspect that's going to happen. Yeah, that's super important to be clear and be honest in those situations. And I definitely work with people on their their actual values that they live and their, their aspirational values. And it's great to aspire to be honest. It's great to aspire to integrity. It's great to aspire to a lot of these different things and to be working that way. Because I think what you were saying is beautiful, that we are so nuanced in our, the moments the situations we find ourselves in, just so many different pieces of our lives, the time we live in, what's happening in the world around us really has a an impact on us as people and our actions and how we interpret our actions, but also how other people interpret our actions. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's that's something I deal with on a daily basis, being in charge of people. You know, I remember when I was, I've been in charge of people since I was 17. So for a long, long time. And I remember when I started, you know, I was, you know, I'm shy, I'm an introvert, and I'm also, you know, I, I like to get along with people, right? So I'd let stuff slide. And then you see the whole mm. just go downhill. You go, okay, well, you can't be everybody's best friend if you're in charge. But then, you know, you also, I everybody has had the boss who goes by the book for every single situation. And then somebody ends up getting fired for being one minute late because they had a baby or something like that, right? You oh, go, yeah, oh, right. It's stupid. Right either, you know? <laughs> so trying to find that medium, like you said, I think that that's really important, a really important skill set for a leader. And it's something that is lacking at, at the higher level positions in, in a lot of businesses that I've seen is, is that ability to um, look at situations on a case-by-case basis um, while also maintaining um, the integrity of the spirit of the rules, right? So sure, sure, rules, sure. And we, we have to apply them to everybody and we have to do this. But at the same time, um, is is you know, there's some leeway so that we don't end up taking these drastic measures um, for for an outlier or something like that. Sure. Well, I think you're actually pointing out this beautiful problem that we have set ourselves up in kind of terrible systems sometimes. I've worked with whole organizations in terms of how they manage conflict. And like within an organization, it's many places, there's conflict, someone files a grievance, someone responds, there's an HR department that calls someone in and puts a note in their record and the problem is solved. I mean, it's very weird and very mechanical, very structured and doesn't serve people very well at all because they're going to go back and be like, well, I have a, you know, a note in my file now, I guess, whatever that means. Or, you know, I've gotten a demerit, you know, my name was written on the board. Like who, like these very weird draconian um, punishments, like literal punishments that are a weird sort that don't resolve any issues, that don't change systems, that don't change how people relate or work together and uh, fundamentally are soul crushing. I think for people in those systems are like, Oh, if I'm one minute late, I'm going to get fired. If I, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, like these, these systems we set up are terrible yeah. <laughs> to begin with. I would say we have unvirtuous systems as well as unvirtuous actions within those systems. Yeah. One of my degrees is in criminal justice. And um, one thing that was interesting that I found studying for that was, um, you know, the American justice system is, is um, focused on punishment. But one oh yeah, of most terrible. Successful interventions is restorative justice, which is actually where they get whoever was harmed together with whoever did the harming, 
And then they just talk it through until the person who's harmed says that they forgive the other person. And honestly, well, and they work out a plan. They don't, sometimes it's even better. They get a plan for what they're going to do to fix that harm. It's not just like, well, we've talked it out and I forgive you. It's like, here's how you're going to fix this for me. And here's how I'm going to know that we're going to fix this relationship and the situation at hand. Both. It's so, restorative justice is so powerful that way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it, it's really something that that's sort of the ideal, right? And, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's resources or time or whatever it is, it hasn't really gained much traction, but it's- Well, it's will. I'm working literally with organizations who are changing their whole model to be much more restoratively focused. They still have, you know, HR rules and law, like there's actual mm-hmm. law, governance laws around who can help mediate conflicts with who and paid staff. And, you know, like there's just, there's some complexities, like again, inherent in the system, but you can have a much more restorative system within your organization, within your team, within the, the space where you work in your area of influence, no matter where you are, I, I'm not going to like guarantee, guarantee, but most likely you can be much more restorative in how you act and interact with people, whether or not you have systematic support throughout your organization. Like you don't have to, yeah, punish people. So many organizations develop uh, their systems based on like this little mini model of the U.S. justice system, which is exactly what you said. So punishment oriented. So maybe we start organization by organization or leader by leader to move those to be more restorative and human and like interact on this very human level, which I think we're both in agreement on that. Yeah. It doesn't mean everyone's, you know, everyone's off the hook for having high standards. It just means that I'm going to approach you like a person <laughs> and understand what's going on with you as a human before we, you know, throw you into this machine and calculates how many minutes late you were and decides how many, how big of a fine you're going to get for that or, you know, whatever weird stuff happens. Yeah. I think that it's really interesting when we bring it back to virtue because you know, just anecdotally in my own experience, um, sometimes when I'm mediating conflict, it's stuff where, you know, you wonder if one or both of the parties involved has a lack of virtue somewhere. You'll, you'll get, Mm. they'll say, well, you know, have you, have you talked to the other person about this, you know, or do you really think this is the kind of thing that needs to be brought, um, to somebody in leadership, or is this something that you could work out on your own, right? And you know, read a lot of times you walk through this and that, and, and you know, and it's um, yeah, there's a lot that there's a lot of complexity, and you know, everybody. Oh, yeah. Some people aren't comfortable with conflict, and some people are, you know, but um, that's I think that's the whole point of it, right? Is that we try to come up with these uh, these rule books that uh, you know cover every every instance of conduct that we can think of. Um, but it ends up being sort of counterproductive in some cases when you could say, well, if you have somebody who's emotionally intelligent, who's in charge and kind of, kind of address these issues in just sort of, you know, a, a, a common sense human way, you'd be a lot better off than you are with 200 pages of rules. In the oh, but, um, absolutely. I think, I think you're right on that, but also that people the other class that no one had is conflict management. No one had virtue class. No one had ethics class and no one had conflict management class growing up. Very few of us. I'm no one. You accepted, but most of us didn't have these classes. And so we are stuck trying to rely on these systems or we feel nervous or scared. Like, you know, we avoid a lot. Like, I don't think people inherently want conflict to get worse, but they do want to avoid conflict. And so that makes it worse so many times. Yeah. So um, what got you interested in teaching virtue? Oh, teaching virtue, I think, is sort of the subtext of what I do all the time. (laughs) Even though we just talked this whole concept of, you know, I'm teaching emotionally intelligent skills, but really, if I want the world to be better, this is definitely a value judgment. If I want people to be reflected well 
you know, whatever, through history over time, you know, in their legacy that they're leaving in whatever space that they're in. I think that is where virtue is part of it. And so it becomes this, I think it's just an interesting question. Like, am I actually helping people leave a positive legacy for the future by giving them good skills, good training, good practices now, or talking with them about how they see and approach and their mindset toward restorative justice versus punitive, you know, criminal justice system or different things. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's something I do, but I don't know that's something I always, you know, get a chance to talk about directly, which is why I'm here talking about it with you. It's so great. Yeah, yeah. No, I feel the same way about philosophy. Um, that's kind of the joke uh, is, you know, I've, I've studied criminal justice and, um, you know, psychology and education and interdisciplinary studies. Um, but I've never studied philosophy. But like that's when you get down to it, that's what I'm interested in. Philosophy is sort of at the root of everything. Um, and virtue is kind of the same way um, in relation to human behavior. Like if you if you sort of boil it down and you go back, um, you can say a lot of human behavior is sort of rooted in virtue or, you know, somebody's conception of, of ethics, which is very closely related. So while virtue is certainly learned, uh, do you believe virtue is usually taught? Well, how would you learn it if you can't teach it, right? And this was this is where we get to in the Mino, where he's like, "Well, we're the teachers of virtue, then." But yet, we all learn it. I think learn. I think virtue is something that's experienced. I think we learn it experientially, and we're better experiential learners when we're reflective, and we can be have people help facilitate our reflection and help facilitate that process for sure. But I think it is. I think I think there's like many things. Like I could be like, "Oh, virtue means step by step by step." It means you know whatever. I could attempt to make a virtue checklist, right? <laughs> for how to be virtuous in a, a situation where I'm having a conversation with someone, for example. And I could follow that, but does that mean I'm virtuous or just follow these steps in the situation? I can play the part of virtue. Or, you know, we hear about people who, um, which is fascinating, right? They, they, they own a big business and they're really great with their people, but at home they have a super terrible home life and they're really, you know, abusive to their dog and like whatever, you know, like there's just like we are multi-layered, multifaceted, complicated people. So is that a virtuous person that runs this really positive, great company or a not virtuous person that, you know, has a dog that they abuse? Like, <laughs> I don't, uh, like we don't want to, like it's, it's maybe, is it all or nothing? Like, I don't know. Are there moments of virtue or... Yeah, it's yeah. Very analogous. I don't have a great answer. <laughs> it's very analogous to uh, what we were just talking about with like um, the company. Like you have the rule book, but you know, the rule book can't address every situation perfectly. And so, you know, I, I think that a good leader and a good mediator is going to, you know, they might act one way in one situation, one way in another situation based on the people involved or the specific offense or these sorts of things that might get lost in just the general wording of a rule book. I think you know, uh, life is, might be sort of similar to that where, you know, you're, you know, like you said, if you have somebody who's, who's great in one area, not great in another area, you know, how does that, how does that balance out? Does it balance out or does being, um, does being bad in one area just automatically make you unvirtuous, right? It's right, right. It's an important question. Um, we love to lump people. We love to like, there are things that people will do that that's their label for life. Like yeah. you're either a murderer or you're not a murderer. Like you can't be like a sort of murderer or like, well, I did that one time. Like that's not gonna, that doesn't fly with our concept of people because we, that is a pigeonhole you fall in. However, I think there are people that make bad choices and then learn to make better choices. And they're like, oh, now I'm making better choices now. So there is 
I mean, as the educator side, I'm like, yeah, obviously there's room for growth. There's room for potential. There's room for change, like fundamental deep levels of change within human beings, how they act, how they see the world, how they do all these things, all possible to change. And, and yet we still have like, well, you're that virtual murder, virtuous murderer, I guess. Weird. You know, like, I don't know. We, we, there's some limit in there that we have a hard time stepping across. Yeah. It's like, I mean, if you save 10 people from drowning, but you drown one person, you're going to be remembered for drowning that one person. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, this is another thing Kelly Chase and I were talking about a couple of weeks ago was, um, you know, uh, like the founding fathers owning slaves or these sorts of things. Um, right. You have people and they did some things that on one hand um, appear to be objectively good or positive on the world stage. Then you have the other things on that were objectively terrible and awful in, in their personal life. And what's the answer to that? And, you know, and, and at the time it was accepted. And at the time those were still viewed as great leaders at the time, mm-hmm. knowing that they had this multiplicity of things now that we look back on and we're like, nope, that's a that's a hard no there to like own humans. Like that's not cool at all. Yeah. But yeah. At the time they were still respected. Yeah, that's and that's why philosophy is important is because philosophy, you know, takes you in the moment, in your the context of your life, the context of your culture and of society, and makes you look at the things that you're doing and say, well, even if everybody's doing this, or even if everybody, this is accepted or whatever, is it right? And I think that a lot of us can, um, you know, can think of things like this that happened within our lifetimes, right? Like I remember, you know, when I was young, um, people used uh, terms uh, for mentally handicapped people, they just throw them around at their friends. Or for uh, gay people, they'd, they'd just throw those terms around at their friends, right? And then, I mean, this was maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago that this was just acceptable. You'd run across this every day on the street, people people doing and saying things like this. Um, and now, nowadays, you'd really be hard-pressed to find somebody that would think that that's an okay thing to do, at least in public. Maybe some right, right. everybody snowflakes and maybe in their house they, they say it behind closed doors or whatever. But the public conscience, you know, an awareness of what is right, what is virtuous, um, has sort of come around to saying, no, you can't use um, the, that term to, you know, you know, even if you're just calling your friend that as, as a joke or whatever, you can't use that term anymore. It's not right, you know. And so, right. And yet at the same time, how many of us has laughed at a meme or a joke that you're like, ha ha ha, oh wait, that actually is kind of offensive. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Or you know, we said some of those things when we were younger and now we look back and we say, oh man, that's terrible. Right. But at the time it didn't seem terrible. Right. Because of the context that you lived in. So yeah, that's what, when, when I was talking to Kelly, she's, you know, she said, when you're looking at history, you know, the important thing is you want to look at all of it, right? You can't, you can't get rid of the founding fathers just because they own slaves. Um, but just because they're the founding fathers, you can't overlook the fact that they own slaves. You have to tell the right. whole story. The whole thing is relevant, yeah. right? And all of us make bad choices. Um, some of them at certain points in our lives. Um, some of us throughout our lives, because we have blind spots or whatever the case may be. Everybody has blind spots. Everybody has biases. Like you said at the beginning of the show, um, some people just start off with a different idea of what their personal uh, virtue is compared to other people. So there's going to be, there's always going to be things that um, that are are controversial like that. 
Well, I've definitely had this experience, though, that you mentioned where working with teenagers, I led wilderness expeditions for 20 years. And so I have a group of teenagers from all over the U.S., the world sometimes, come together and one will say something and someone else will be like, whoa, someone else will be like, this is just how I talk with my friends. And then there's this beautiful moment in my mind where someone's like, well, we're your new friends and that's not cool with us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's actually not okay here. Or or they'll say you're not with your friend. You're not at home with your friends anymore. You know, kind of this like distinction between, the, yeah, that maybe that was okay with your, your close buddies at home, but hold on. <laughs> like it's actually not awesome where we are now. Like look around a little bit. And it's this beautiful moment of awareness if it's done well, right? To invite people into that conversation and be like, yeah, you. and it's, I think I agree with what you were saying too. It's not necessarily thoughtful. It's not necessarily... You know, like, oh, I'm going to say something offensive right now or whatever. I think people have habits, you know, we <laughs> that we are creatures of habit in terms of how we think, how we communicate and what we're comfortable with. If we're comfortable with our friends, maybe we'll communicate that same way with people who we don't know as closely. And it's, then it can be this. Yeah, there's a really great moments for that experience of learning, right? Happening in those moments when you're like, oh, I did think that was cool because with my friends, I thought you were my friends. It's not that you're not my friends. It's just that that thing is not cool anymore in this situation. Yeah, I think it's that reaction that that's very important, right? Is because if it's that con confrontation with your behavior that should ideally make you reflect on what you did and then determine if it was right or wrong and then change your behavior, right? Um, and you know that's I it's difficult for some people. Yeah, it's super tricky. It's super like a dicey conversation to say, we talked about restorative justice and in that whole conceptualization, someone gets to say I was harmed and someone else might say, I didn't harm you. I was just living my life, doing my thing, how I always do it. And someone else is like, what you're doing is actually harming me. So then who's right? The person who says, no, it doesn't harm you or the person who says, I was harmed by this behavior, this action that, you know, things that happened here. And it's, I think those are interesting conversations to invite people into. And to have that, and those take a lot of emotional intelligence, maybe diplomacy, maybe negotiation. But if people can engage in those conversations, they're really mind opening for people on all sides. It's not just, well, one person was right and one person was wrong. It's not really what happens in the end of those conversations. But what happens is, oh, there's a lot more nuance here. Oh, there's a lot more to think of. There's more to reflect on. There's more ideas that we can have. There's more sides to these founding fathers slash slaveholder slash, you know, other people, you know. There's yeah. just more to see and more to learn about people. Yeah, and I think that if you look at just the regular justice system, you see that a lot. Like, yeah, I mean, lawyers, you have these prolonged court cases where they argue back and forth and they try to establish evidence and, and they do these things. Um, but usually what happens is that um, there's there's mitigating factors for some behavior and there's there's aggravating circumstances for other things. And, you know, but a lot, in the end, that doesn't, some of it gets taken into account, you know, in, in sentencing, but really it, it yeah. uh, somebody wins and somebody loses in, in the oh, yeah. currently laid out. But. Oh yeah, it's black and white. I was on the jury once for a murder trial a few years ago and it was fascinating because our whole task as a jury was to decide, did this person, literally he uh, shot someone, like did this person shoot this other person? And there were witnesses and there's evidence and there's pieces, you know, it was not like TV at all. It was very boring. It took two weeks. You know, it's kind of like, okay, I'm sitting around listening to more of this happen. You know, people are, witnesses are like, oh yeah, I moved this, this piece of evidence from here to there. And that's like their whole thing on the stand. I'm like, why are we, okay, great. Like this evidence moved places, boring. Um, but fundamentally, yeah, we were in charge of sentencing and it was not a capital, um, like a whatever it is, like there was not a chance of the death penalty. That was not like an option because of the state where I'm living. And so 
that was it. Like our task was to decide and then sentencing happened later. So I'd be curious to go back and look at, well, cool. We decided guilty in this case, you know, based on the evidence, it seemed pretty clear, a unanimous jury, you know, like there's just all these different pieces where we try to put in place. Right. But in the jury room, we're talking like, well, I don't know, this is a big deal. Are you sure? And like, there's just a lot of discussion that happens as, you know, off the, out of the courtroom and we came to a consensus, you know, an agreement at the end, but yeah, I didn't follow up with like, you know, I was like, I'm happy to disconnect from this and not follow up on how the sentencing went down the road. But yeah, I don't know what happened in the sentencing later. And I think that's where we open the door to bias. We open the door to these different things. On the flip side, though, having a, you know, oh, this equals this, you know, like a one to you know, correlation of more rules, more things doesn't quite seem right either. Like, I think we've talked about this, like, oh, you did, you know, you have one uh, one instance of this crime, one instance of this. However, you have one instance of poverty and one instance of, you know, dropping out of high school. What does this mean? Like, how do we rank this all out together? It doesn't, it's not a super logical connection between who people are and then how sentencing works, even though I think the court has wrestled with how to have mandatory sentencing or other different pieces in different places. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that was a, the main takeaway from a lot of the coursework in criminal justice was um, you know, a lot of crime comes down to um, people being raised in disadvantaged situations, you know, people who, um, you know, they don't have a, a great home life, they're missing members of their family, or they're, they lived in poverty, or they have a lot of circumstances that, that put them in a bad spot. Um, but rather than addressing some of those issues, uh, a lot of times it just, you know, they let the, the system sort of run, run its course. But yeah. So is that virtuous to let these systems exist that basically put people in and spit them back out, right? Yeah. As like, well, too bad. Sucks to be you. And and yeah, at the same time, we want people to be responsible and accountable for their actions and their behavior. You know, if I was walk up to you and like sock you in the face, yeah, like <laughs> I should probably be held accountable for, for doing that in the moment. And yet you could look at it like, well, I was, I don't know, whatever, mitigating circumstances, blah, 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 reasons, reasons, reasons. Great. That doesn't give you less of a black eye in the moment, though. Like, that still hurts. Like, it's still, yeah, complicated. But I think we don't have systems aligned with virtue all the time, right, to support people through that. Right. So I think we've talked a little bit about what the importance of teaching virtue is. Um, What do you think the best way is to go about teaching virtue? So, I mean, right now, um, pretty much it's not being taught, right? Or it is being taught, but but where are people learning it? You know, it's, you know, probably from their parents early on, then maybe from, um, you know, teachers or authority figures throughout their life. What what would be the best way of, uh, of addressing that, do you think? I think it, and even in those different situations, it's really through mentorship that it gets taught. Mentorship slash coaching, I think those terms are not super important, which you pick. But to look at action and to look at choices and look at the nuances of a situation and talk through decisions, even as, as a reflective practice, I think is useful. I think that is really the only way you can teach virtue is by being, you, and I think people can mentor themselves actually and do have a really, you know, some folks have really well-developed reflective practices for themselves and really look into things. And others, I think most of us, we don't spend time thinking about virtue. We don't spend thinking about you know, doing the right thing. I think a lot of folks out there, a lot of folks I work with, are, I wrestle with this sense of guilt or like, am I doing right by my people? Am I doing it? Am I okay with this? Did I do the right thing? Uh, you know, like there's some tension there for folks. And then, you know, they kind of, they work through it in their own ways. But I think to make those into opportunities for learning 
or slash teaching virtue, I think, you know, the other side of the coin, the learning side and the teaching side, I think those, those mentorship style and coaching style conversations are really maybe the only way to go. And there's something to be said for like, hey, let's go read the Mino and talk about that. And hey, let's go, you know, here's some classical literature. Here's some beautiful, you know, evocative poetry about virtue. Here's some different things. You know, there's ways to, you know, dictionary definition yourself into it. But I think the, it is a practice and a practice is learned and lived. So being part of that learned and lived practice is coaching slash mentoring, you know, those types of roles. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely agree with that. I think that, um, you know, there's something special about that, that sort of a relationship where, um, you know, with a mentorship, somebody that you look up to, uh, somebody whose, um, you know, opinions that you respect and somebody who most importantly, who you believe, um, embodies some sort of virtue that, that you aspire to. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, you know, like you said, there's, I think there's some value to, to some of the, the textual things, um, but really only as, as examples, as talking points, right? Okay, read, read this. Um, now, let me bring up a scenario, right? So now if this were to happen, what would be the, the way of doing it? You know, I think the experiential learning is, is important there. Um, in what ways would teaching virtue impact society? We've talked a little bit about, um, you know, the, the justice system and stuff. Um, what are some other ways you think that uh, a virtue curriculum would, would help society? Yes. Teaching virtue, I think, would have a huge impact interpersonally, day-to-day reactions, actions and interactions. But I think also the systems, like we were talking about before, like so organizations wouldn't would have more, potentially more restorative style processes within organizations, but also within city, local governments, national governments, international interactions, I think. And I think that comes from this idea of, I think the philosopher side of me is like, well, if we reflect on it and think about it, we might make better choices, right? And so it's hoping, hopeful that people are more intentional then. And like a lot of what I teach around, um, I actually teach on what restorative justice is and people are like, oh, there's another way? Like, oh, like I think they, you know, we're so ingrained in the systems and, you know, the, how we've been raised, where, where we've been, our local culture that we don't really recognize that, you know, we're fish in the tank, like we're surrounded by water. What? You know, it just doesn't sort of cross our minds. So I think I am optimistic that more thought on what virtue is and even wrestling with it. Like we don't have a list. There's no checklist. There's no things, you know, that are easy. There's no easy answers, I think, would make people, yeah, just act a little bit differently toward each other, which is great in a positive way, I would think. Yeah. So that segues good into the next question I had, um, speaking about, um, some of those things is virtue something that can be shared across cultures um or do you think there's likely to be tensions um there's always going to be some kind of tensions with people from different backgrounds that's a great question i think i think there are some fundamental aspects of human nature that transcend culture right like as humans we need to have enough a strong enough relationship to care for a baby until it's able to care for itself right like we can't just there's not a culture in the world that's like oh baby was born see ya you know it just drops it off on the side of the road and that's you know good fair for fend for yourself you know little one so right. like we're we're wired for the sense of connection we're wired for a sense of community i'm a fan of Brene brown who would say we're wired for the sense of um like just sort of very personal level of connection and for feeling like we are connected, not just like, oh, I happen to be near some people. I have some neighbors. Cool. But like the sense of we're humans in this together is super important to folks. And so if we boil virtue, if we take the cultural differences out of virtue, because I think there it's easy to look at different 
cultures and say like, well, it's really virtuous in some cultures to be a strong individual. And in other cultures, it's super virtuous to, to support the collective above the individual, right? And so you're right. like, well, what is virtue? I don't know. You know, but we see those as very uh, important aspects of these, of different cultures, you know, as a kind of big picture stereotype, right? I think the people, the things of virtue that are maybe more fundamental transcend culture around supporting connection, supporting growth. And they talk about these beautiful things about what's the same across cultures, smiles, laughter. You know, there are cultures that have the same sense of um, fear or, you know, like like humans have these sort of shared traits and they could be psychological, they could be physiological. You know, they sort of different, I think different disciplines try to to cultivate the same, you know, what's what makes a human a human and the ancient philosophers did too. It's, a, it's obviously a featherless bird with two legs. I mean, clearly that's all we need to know to be human. And so... If we're looking at that level of like the humanness, I think there are there are things that connect us that transcend culture. And that, I mean, I guess we could call that virtue. We could just call that also human. I don't know if it matters. It becomes sort of like, oh, wait, we all need food? Okay, food is virtuous. You know, like it's kind of becomes watered down at a certain point. Yeah. Yeah. So um, is virtue ultimately relativistic or is there an actual standard that, that matters, do you think? It's tough, right? You know, I've, I've been thinking about it while you're sitting here talking. When I wrote the question, I wasn't I wasn't sure if I had an answer. To me, yeah. Do you have an answer? What's it? What is the answer? Let me know. You know, I think the ultimate virtue, and then what sort of the standard is, is empathy, right? I think that if you're a person who is willing and able um, to sort of peek into the mind of somebody else and sort of try to understand their context and their thinking and their feelings, and then react in a way um, that displays some kind of compassion or understanding, that's really sort of what we're getting at as far as what what's kind of important. That's what it seems like to me. I don't know. What do you think? That's great. I think there's this empathy has a couple of different types. And the one that relates to emotional intelligence, which I talk about a lot, is cognitive empathy, which is what you're talking about, that I can understand how you're thinking and what and what you're feeling. And I can be like, oh, you're feeling happy right now. Like, oh, you're feeling a little stressed. Like, oh, I can see that you're blah, 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 whatever that is. Versus, I think there's this other um, emotional type of empathy where I'm feeling with you, right? I think some people call empathy like, oh, you're feeling sad, I'm now crying. You know, and we we have mirror neurons. Like sometimes we see someone crying, we cry. We see someone, you know, feeling sick, we feel sick, you know, whatever it is. Like we obviously, there's more complex layers in there. But I think the cognitive empathy you're talking about is interesting because then, I'm going to take that into account, theoretically. Not just I can say like, oh, you're, it looks like, you know, I understand. I can grasp that you're feeling stressed in this situation. I'm going to act in a way that is appropriate for that. You know, whatever it is, like, you know, relieve stress or whatever, you know, like just take that into account with my behavior and actions. So I think awareness is definitely part of it to be virtuous. Mm, yeah. And I think That's virtue, like, you're... No, right? Because like you were saying, yeah, if somebody is their context and their thinking and their emotions um, might still be um, taking you to a spot that is antithetical to your your own belief system. So oh, yeah. in that case, um, I think empathy, empathy is, is helpful there because you understand the context, the thinking and the emotions, but you still have to take a stance or a position or an action that's counter to those things in order to remain virtuous. So I think, yeah, I think it might be a good first step, but I think that it goes, it probably goes beyond that, doesn't it? 
Yeah. I don't think we can, I, I don't think we can ever get the list or the checklist down, but being aware of and attentive to other people sound like they should be on that list. If there is a list, those, those are parts on it. But then what you do after that, like if you act in support of their thoughts and ideas, or if you act not in them, either one could be virtuous, right? Like, I think like you were saying, that's a beautiful um, sort of, yeah, conundrum within there. Like, cool. I know now I know more about you. I'm connected with you as a human. However, I still think what you're doing is terrible and I'm not on board with it. You know, whatever that is, which might be great or might might not. Maybe you should be on board with it. Like maybe that would have been the better course of action. But how do we look at it over time when we're only in the present is, yeah, it's a little yeah. messy. Right. And, you know, that's where that's where this idea of virtue being relativistic comes back around because people with psychopathic or sociopathic tendencies, they might have really a really good um, idea what people's context are, what they're thinking are, what their emotions are, but then they're using it for the opposite of, you know, for, or for unvirtuous means. So, but in somewhere in their mind, um, you know, as, as what, you know, diseased or misguided as it might be, that seems like that is the thing that should be done. Right. So yeah. How do we, yeah. What is this, you know, is there an objective or, you know, some sort of how would you define virtue it's a, it's a really difficult thing to to wrap our heads around absolutely and i think it's also a matter of scale right like i should act in preservation of myself generally like i should keep myself alive and functioning well but if i act in preservation of myself to the detriment of the people around me is that cool like maybe not like i think if i'm if i'm doing things to yeah i can support myself or i can support myself at the expense of others that's probably not awesome for those other people, right? Or being, hmm. you know, tools of, <laughs> to support someone else without their knowing, or, you know, without their consent or without, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. In the, uh, like, sociopathic sort of style or psychopathic kind of style, like, oh, yeah, I'm the smartest, so I'm, I make the best decisions. But they happen to be only the best decisions for me, and they are terrible decisions for everyone else. But, you know, if I am have that ego sense of well, I'm making the best decisions or I know it, these are virtuous decisions you know history will show me right like maybe maybe not i don't know yeah messy yeah so you know i think that that goes to that second level so if if the empathy part of it is is the first level um and then the you know virtue is the next level i think that it seems like no matter what virtue is it has to have a connection with other people right i don't think that it exists in a vacuum it's 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 probably not something where, you know, I can define all of my terms for virtue, right? Like, oh, if, if I'm honest and, and I have integrity and I have all these things, then I'm virtuous. But really, what's going to determine whether or not I'm virtuous is how I interact with others, right? Yeah. Can you be virtuous alone on a desert island, right? Is kind of the question you're asking. If yeah. there's no one around me, maybe, I don't know. I think there are, I think people create things or leave leave records of themselves that are not virtuous, even though they might seem like a great person. And then on the flip side, people leave really amazing, like I think of Emily Dickinson's poetry, that it's on little scraps of paper all over her house. It has to be like literally found in the drawers and the cupboards and collected. And it's really beautiful, right? She left all these remnants, but at the time, they're like, oh, that weird recluse up there in that house. You know, like no, like people I think did not know her the same, you know, in that way as a person necessarily. So if you were isolated, yeah, I don't know. You can leave records, I suppose that maybe yeah. that show your character or show your, your nature in different ways. But yeah, how you act moment to moment. I like the how. The how is, I think, somehow important with this. Yeah, yeah. 
So what what other things about virtue can you think of that we haven't we haven't covered? I think we've covered it all. Obviously, we've not put a bow on it, wrapped it up. It's like done. Like there's <laughs> nothing else to say about virtue. Uh, I don't know. Are we missing I, any any big topics that you that you can think of, or do we do a pretty good job? I think we did a good job of deciding absolutely nothing. So that's perfect. I'm I'm that, here for the open end. <laughs> that's why the show is called From Nowhere to Nothing is because that's uh, we've most, gone most, there. Most <laughs> of our conversations go right. Is you know that's. That's why philosophy exists, right? Because if you if you were able to start from a point and then come to a conclusion, um, there's a very good chance that it would be a science, right? You'd be able to conduct mm. experiments that would causally show that something something happened. Philosophy exists because there are things in life, in our general experience, that um, it doesn't matter how well you you rationally or logically think about it, or what kind of ex- experiments you conduct. Um, there's just never any way of, of coming to a definitive conclusion, right? But there's still things that are, are, are worth talking about because as we've shown today, they have big implications on, on society. So, um, you know, not, I, and I, I would say not that philosophers haven't tried, like Spinoza out there trying to geometrically prove God exists. Like good, good on you, buddy. Good luck. Like it's, um, let yeah. me know when that proof is done. Right. Yep. So that's it's been all over the map, but no, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, thanks for being on the show. Uh, and until next time, keep on. Hearing.